You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of God. Well, good morning and a very warm welcome to Reality Church London. Uh, my name is Bijan. For those of you that I haven't yet met, I'm the pastor here for our church. And let me just say, as I do every single week, that we are one church gathering together in two places. Some of us are here in person at Central Foundation. Others are gathering virtually online, but we're one church scattered throughout this city. And it is a joy for us to gather together for worship every Sunday. I also wanna say, that each week as we gather, because we're meeting in two places, we rely on a whole host of volunteers to make that happen. And I especially wanna shout out Meg this morning. If you guys see Meg there in the back. She didn't know I'd do that, but Meg each week not only helps us have an in-person service, but for those of you attending on Zoom, she's what makes that possible. And so Meg, thank you so much for all of our leaders, thank you. Now, we just read Matthew chapter 5. We're going to get to that in just a moment, but let's pray before we do. Our great God, I thank you for gathering us together this morning to study your word as a church family. And so as we look at Matthew chapter 5 and this important set of teaching that your son gave, I ask, we ask for wisdom and understanding, humility to discern how this applies to our own lives, and power to change, power to grow and love for Jesus to be increased. So do these things now, we pray, as we gather around your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Now, each week, for the past couple of weeks, we've been in a series looking at Matthew chapter 5 through 7. This is famously known in the Bible as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus giving teaching about discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus in the world today. And so what we've been asking is, what does it look like for us as individuals and for us as a church to take discipleship seriously, to be a community that follows Jesus in London and makes him known? What we've noticed each week is that Jesus is describing more than just behavior. He's not just talking about externals, but he's actually focused on the inner attitudes, you might say the postures of our heart, the postures that should characterize the followers of Jesus in the world. Now, the passage you just heard read suggests that this is a sermon that will be hard to sleep through. It's about sexuality. It's about relationships. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about these topics, and it's important that as a church and in our communities, we're able to talk about this. It's also important to recognize that today's sermon can't cover everything the Bible says about sexuality, about marriage and divorce, about relationships. But what I want you to see, even from the very beginning, is that yes, Jesus uses these examples, 
But what he's really after, I'll show you this in a few moments, is a condition of the heart, a kind of inner heart posture or attitude that underlies the way we approach and think about our sexuality and our relationships. And so keep that as mind as we journey through this passage. But to guide us today, here's the outline for our sermon. First thing we're gonna do is ask the question, what is Jesus teaching? We just gotta look at the text and really wrestle with it and make sure we understand what's Jesus teaching. Then we're gonna ask, well, what's he really after? What does he really want from his disciples? And then the third thing, how do we get it? How do we get what Jesus is really after, what he really wants? So what is he teaching? What's he really after? And how do we get that which Jesus is really wanting? So first, what is Jesus teaching? We're going to go right through the text from top to bottom. You notice there in verse 27 that Jesus begins the teaching by saying, you have heard that it was said. He does that in verse 27. He'll do it again in verse 31. And so what Jesus is doing throughout the sermon and here in our passage is he's clarifying the true teaching of the Old Testament law. You see, the Old Testament law was something that was known by the people of God. But what Jesus is doing is he's coming along to say, you've heard it said, there's teaching, there's tradition that we're all familiar with. But let me show you what it really means. And so he begins, though, by giving an example. And this is what the first part of our passage is about there in verse 27. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, that was one of the Ten Commandments. If you're an ancient person familiar with God's word, you know the Ten Commandments, and you know that Jesus, that God would say, don't commit adultery. And you say, yes and amen. We all know that adultery is wrong, the people would have said who were listening to Jesus. Now, adultery, simply defined, is a violation of your marriage vow. It's having sex outside of marriage. And Jesus is saying, we all know that command. We all believe it. And so we can say a hearty amen to it. Jesus would have heard from his immediate listeners. But now look at what Jesus does here in verse 28. He did this last week on the topic of anger. He's going to do it now again with adultery. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But verse 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what's Jesus doing? He's showing us the true intention of God's law. He's saying the action of adultery always springs out of the attitude of lust. And so it's not just deeds that God is concerned with, it's desires. It's not just what we do, but what our hearts long for that matter in the presence of God. Now, by the way, Jesus is just giving an example. So he says, if a man looks lustfully at a woman, but this includes women looking lustfully at men. Jesus is just giving an example. This is not meant to be a comprehensive description. He's just pointing out the kind of heart attitude that should characterize his followers. If you look at someone lustfully, Jesus says, it's the seed of adultery in your heart. And so Jesus is going deeper. Now, we have to be clear at this point. What does Jesus mean? To even look at someone with lust is the same in the eyes of God as adultery. Now, let me be clear. In the Bible, lust is not the same thing as physical attraction. Jesus is not condemning being physically attracted to another person. 
The reason we know that is because the Bible actually has quite a lot of positive things to say about physical attractiveness or physical attraction to another person. Let me give you a couple of examples, just so we're really clear about this. Sometimes people think Christianity is kind of prudish. It's afraid of sex. But let me show you that's not what Jesus is condemning here. So the Bible begins with what? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the creation of Adam and Eve. And in chapter 2 of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve brought together for the first time. And what do we have there at the end of the chapter? They're standing naked and unashamed in each other's presence. And Adam, when he sees Eve, he actually breaks out in a kind of song. It's the first love song in history. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so what you have in that moment is a person looking at another person and rejoicing in their physicality. Later in our Bible, we have the Song of Solomon, which is at least partially about two people experiencing romantic and sexual love and are unashamed about it. So what Jesus is here talking about is not physical attraction. What is lust? Well, I think we can think about it this way. Lust is always the opposite of love. You see, love is always others-centered. Love is always about serving and giving and rejoicing in and for another person. But lust is always self-focused or self-centered. If love says, how can I give and how can I serve? Lust is always saying, how can you serve me? What can I get from you? Love looks to another person to rejoice in who they are and how you can serve them. Lust is saying, how can you satisfy and please me? And Jesus is saying the attitude of using our sexuality for self or for self-gratification is what is being condemned here. And Jesus says that's much more than just your activities. It's an attitude of the heart. That's what verses 27 through 30 are about. Now, come down to the next example that Jesus gives, verses 31 and 32. He's talking here now about marriage and about divorce. So let me read the text. Verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, you got to stay with me because this one is a little bit more tricky to understand. It really gets into some complicated stuff in the Old Testament. So let me see if I can quickly unpack it for all of us. Jesus is talking about a teaching that came down from the book of Deuteronomy. And here's what the teaching was in the Old Testament. Divorces were happening too commonly in Israelite society, back way before Jesus' day. And so God came to Moses and said, look, if someone gets divorced, and if a man files for divorce, the woman must be given a certificate proving that that divorce was legal. And the reason was so that as she then went out to live the rest of her life, she would have legal and cultural protections because the society in which they lived was way too patriarchal. It was not a society in which women generally flourished. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, if divorce happens, you must make sure that the woman is given a legal and cultural set of protections so she can continue living her life with fairness and with some degree of equity. So that's what happens in the Old Testament. If a divorce takes place, make sure she gets a certificate. But by the time we get to Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, what's happened is that teaching has changed. Not only in the letter of the law, but the spirit. Because by the time we now get to Jesus' day, 
what we have are people saying, as long as you give someone a certificate of divorce, you can divorce for any reason. So what was meant in the time of Moses to be a legal protection, now in the time of Jesus has become permissiveness for divorce for almost any reason. And so we actually have examples from Jesus's time where people were filing for divorce because someone ruined dinner or a more attractive spouse came along. I kid you not. And Jesus is saying, yeah, well, you guys might be following the letter of the law, providing the certificate, but you've missed the spirit entirely. Because the spirit of the law is saying marriage is an institution set up by God. That's not to be terminated or abrogated because you don't find this marriage satisfying or because someone better came along. Now, friends, hear me, and this is so crucial, so please hear me. Today's sermon is not meant to be about marriage and divorce. I'm not here today to talk to you about reasons for divorce and what the Bible says about divorce. That's an important topic. It's a very sensitive topic. It's one that many of us have experienced personally or in the lives of people around us. This sermon isn't about that. What this sermon is about is the attitude that someone might have as they approach relationships and as they approach marriage that says, if this doesn't work for me or when this gets too complicated, I'm out of here. Jesus is saying, you guys are fulfilling the letter of the law. We gave a certificate, but you've missed the spirit entirely. That's the teaching. Lust, verses 27 through 30, marriage and divorce, verses 31 and 32. So now let's ask the question, okay, if that's the teaching, what is Jesus really after? I mean, what is the passage really about? What is the heart attitude that Jesus is setting forth as the ideal for his disciples. And here's what you need to see. Jesus is interested in behavior, sure, but he's interested in something much deeper and much more fundamental. Let me say it a different way. You can change your behavior and still be far away from God. And what Jesus is interested in is a heart that's actually being renewed, the attitudes of a heart that are being drawn closer to God. And so what is the heart attitude that is underlying what Jesus is teaching here in these verses. And here's the answer, selflessness. The call of Jesus for his disciples in these verses is to cultivate selflessness. And that's actually what brings these two sections together. What does lust have to do with divorce and marriage? And the underlying thing that actually connects these two sections of teaching is selflessness or the human tendency towards selfishness. What Jesus is after is that his disciples would live in this world from an attitude, a posture of self-giving and selflessness. So let me show you what I mean. What is lust fundamentally? It's using another person for self-gratification. You might do this in your mind, you might do this physically. You might do this with another person or with images on the screen. But lust is always about saying, I want something that you can give me. And so without honoring you fully, I'm going to take advantage of it. That's always, in essence, what lust is about. It's an example in our sexuality of selfishness. What is Jesus talking about here regarding divorce? It's basically a criticism of this attitude. When this marriage stops working for me, I'm out. I don't want any part of it. 
If this gets too hard, if you're not serving me, if you are contradicting me, if this gets too tense, I don't think it's going to be worth it. And so I'm going to find an option to leave. And what Jesus is criticizing ultimately at the bottom is an attitude in our sexuality, an attitude in our relationships that is self-centered and self-absorbed. Now, this is really important for us to be thinking about in every part of our life, but especially in the realm of relationships and sexuality. This is why Jesus is using these examples to talk about this cultivation of selflessness. So step back with me for a minute. I'm just going to paint a little picture for us about marriage and sexuality in the Bible so that we have a clear understanding of why cultivating selflessness in this area is such a good barometer of what's going on in our hearts. In the Bible, what's marriage about? Ultimately, it's about a man and a woman coming together and making a lifelong and an exclusive promise, a vow, a covenant, till death do us part. And in the eyes of God, what he's brought together, the Bible says, let no one set asunder. Let no one end. It's meant to be a forever and a kind of permanent union. Now, we all know, we've experienced, marriage can be truly hard. But what Jesus is saying, and again, there's a lot more in the Bible about this topic, but what Jesus is saying is nothing but the act of physical adultery is such that it can terminate marriage. He's trying to say your attitude in this relationship should be one of giving yourself completely to another person, committing and making promises. And inside that relationship, Jesus says, because of the condition, the strength of what marriage is, that's the only place where sexuality can be fully enjoyed and practiced. Because what is sex ultimately? It's physically embodying what's happened spiritually when two people have made vows and promises to each other. So in marriage, you give yourself completely to another person, socially, relationally, spiritually, and physically. And so Jesus is saying, sexuality, when it's taken out of marriage, is always reducing the sex act to something that becomes more about self than it is about the other person. About giving yourself, about giving away more of yourself as you become one with another person that you've made promises to, that you've made vows to. So Jesus is saying, and we have to be clear about this, sex isn't bad. Sex isn't taboo. Sex isn't something to be avoided. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. In fact, it's so good and so powerful, it's only rightly enjoyed in the context of two people who have given their entire lives to each other. That's what Jesus is saying. And every time we approach our relationships with this kind of, well, if it gets hard, I'm out of here. Or every time we think about our expressions of sexuality in terms of self-gratification and not self-giving, we're actually having a lower view than the Bible does of these really important areas in our life. It's not sex or sexuality that's the problem, it's our selfishness. And that's what Jesus is saying needs to be repented of. And that helps us understand these really strong, and I admit, quite bothersome words there in verses 29 and 30. This is the part where Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And then if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. We read that and we say, that's very provocative language. Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, first of all, we know Jesus is not talking about something literal. He's not talking about actually maiming oneself. The reason we know that is because if you pluck out one eye, you've got the other one. 
If you cut off one hand, you have the other. And more than that, he's talking about an attitude of the heart. So he's not talking about something literal. What he's saying with very forceful language is your sin is so seriousness, your, your selfishness is so serious that you can't let it live in the corner of your life like it's not a big deal. If at home we walked into our apartment, our flat, and I saw a viper in the lounge, I wouldn't say, oh, geez, there's a viper here. That's really unfortunate. Let's all be careful. And then put Esme down to play. The presence of such a vicious creature would require drastic action on my part. And Jesus is saying, your selfishness will get you. Your selfishness will be the end of you, ultimately. Because selfishness is hell. It's complete self-absorption. And when you see selfishness manifesting itself in your life, and especially in your relationships, in your sexuality, don't think, oh, well, it's just this little thing that I can deal with in the corner. Jesus is saying you've got to take radical and drastic action. Because this is the beginning of the end when we see this happening in our lives and leaving it unchecked. That's the reason for such forceful language. Now, before we move on to the third point of the sermon, let me just try to say something about why this set of teaching that Jesus is giving, and right now, if you're feeling a little squirmy, a little uncomfortable, let me just say why this set of teaching is actually really hard for people living in London in the 20, 2021, in this year, in this time of life. There are two ideas that exist in the fabric of our culture that are kind of woven into the drinking water of what it means to be a modern person in a city like London today. And because this is the world we live in, it actually makes living out Jesus' teaching here really challenging. So here are the two ideas. The first is this. If something is hard, it must be wrong. If something is wrong, it must be hard. That idea is baked into the cultural fabric of our world. And so we, therefore, have never been more convenience-driven or comfort-driven than we are today. Did you know, for example, that when Netflix first started its streaming service, you had to always click on your remote to go to the next episode? But now it does it for you. So you can sit on your couch all day and just keep streaming and streaming. Why? Because the engineers knew the easier we make something, the more it's going to be consumed. People are interested in things that require less and less from them. That's why Cal Newport, who's been a sociologist studying some of these things, says humans are naturally biased towards activities that require less energy in the short term, even if they're more harmful in the long term. This is why you text your siblings instead of calling them. We're prone to things that are easier, and it's becoming more and more the case. Now think about that in relationship to marriage. Think about that in relationship to our relationships. If it's hard, it must be wrong. Well, marriage is hard a lot. Real friendships are hard a lot. And if we have an attitude of self-preservation, then of course we're always going to be looking for an escape hatch. Jesus is calling for his disciples to be different. Here's the second idea, not just if it's hard, it's wrong, but here's the second idea baked into the fabric of our culture. You are what you desire. Your identity is found by looking inside of yourself, seeing what's there, and then expressing it to the world. 
I am what I want. And so in that world, when that's the motto, sexuality becomes not just a way to give yourself to another person, but a way to express yourself in the world. Sex now becomes not a way to give yourself to another person, but to find and to express who you really are. You are what you want. And for these reasons, Jesus' teaching is actually hitting a square between the eyes. And that's what we need. Because to follow Jesus in this world is a call to be different. Discipleship is a call to difference. And so what Jesus is after here is the cultivation of selflessness. The cultivation of attitudes of the heart that become more about self-giving than self-getting. So here's the question. How do we do that? How do we cultivate selflessness? How do we become a people who can actually begin to live into and live out Jesus' teaching here in these verses? And friends, it's important that we end our sermon here. Because this isn't a sermon about changing behavior. That would be too too shallow. It's about going deeper and asking, how do we experience heart renewal that changes everything about how we live in this world? How do we become people who cultivate selflessness? And here's the answer. How do you become a person who's more selfless? By beholding something beautiful. The way to cultivate selflessness is to see and to experience beauty. Now, you've all had this encounter. You've all had this experience. For example, let's say you've gone skiing and you get off the mountain, you get off at the lift at the very top of the mountain and you look out on that beautiful clear day. You see the cascading hills. You see glorious white snow everywhere. You've never seen a landscape so beautiful than the one that you're looking at at that moment. As you stand there and look out, getting ready to go down the hill, you do not say to yourself, oh, wow, wow. I am so wonderful. The world is so lucky to have me. You see, when you stand there and you gaze out and look out at beauty, yourself is decentered. For a moment, you stop thinking about yourself at all. You're lost in awe and in wonder, and you're just grateful to be a part of it. You see, in the presence of beauty, self is decentered. That's why also, in a very different kind of example, when you read a story or see a movie about a person who lives with sacrifice and with courage, maybe someone who gives themselves up for the sake of another person, you do not say, oh, what should we be having for lunch again? You're filled with a kind of odd inspiration, a desire to yourself be more generous and sacrificial. You see, in the presence of beauty, you stop thinking about your own needs, even if for 10 seconds. It's the presence of beauty that makes us self-absorbed. That's why Elaine Scarry, who is a professor of aesthetics, said this, in the presence of beauty, we cease to stand at the center of our own world. We willingly cede our ground to the thing that stands before us. In the presence of beauty, we don't just become self-forgetful, but more than that, all the space that was formerly used in service of advancing self is now free to be in the service of something else. The presence of beauty decenters us. It makes us more others-focused and more humble and grateful to be in the world. So here's the question. We're almost done, but here's the question. Is there a beauty that's big enough Is there a beauty that's satisfying enough that if you behold it, 
can actually help you become who cultivate, a person who cultivates selflessness in the world that we live in today. And here's the answer. The only beauty big enough to satisfy your soul is the spousal love of Jesus Christ. The only beauty that's big enough to fully heal the ache in your heart is the spousal love of Jesus. Now, what do I mean? I'll admit that many times when I think about the fact that Jesus is my groom or my spouse, and the Bible makes that point clear, sometimes it sounds a little abstract. I'm married to Jesus, but that's actually what it means to be a Christian. The Bible says that we are united to Jesus in the very same way that the Bible describes marriage, the way a man and a woman come together and they make these lifelong and exclusive promises. The Bible says that that's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is the great groom of our soul. He is our spouse. And I admit that sometimes that sounds abstract to me. Until a couple of years ago, as I was thinking about this, in light of the book of Hebrews. You see, there's a part of the Bible in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, it says this, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Now just meditate with that, on that phrase with me for a moment. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross. You see, the cross was an absolute horror. It was an absolute evil. Why? Because on the cross, what is Jesus doing? He's taking all of your sin upon his shoulders. Well, what is sin? Sin is self-absorption. Sin is selfishness. For every single moment in your life where you acted out of self-interest instead of the good of another, every time we allowed a self-rule rather than obeying God to be preeminent in our lives, selfishness. On the cross, Jesus takes all of that upon himself. And he dies. And he experiences ultimate judgment, ultimate wrath, ultimate evil on that cross. Why did he do it? For the joy that was set before him. Well, what is that joy? It's you. You're the joy that led Jesus to the cross. And even that, I admit, can sound a little abstract. But think with me. Jesus is our spouse. Jesus is our great groom. I've had the privilege of officiating bunches of weddings in my life. You do this as a pastor. And so there's a moment in every wedding ceremony, and you've all experienced this, where there's a bride coming down the aisle, she rounds the corner, and everybody looks at the bride, as they should. But there I am standing at the end of the aisle, and next to me is the groom. And always during that moment, when everybody looks at the bride, I always take a quick glance at the groom. And what do I see? Joy. I mean, this guy is beaming from ear to ear. He knows it's the best day of his life, and he has no business marrying that woman. But she said yes. And he knows I've never gotten so lucky as I am right now in this moment. And he is filled with joy. And I realize Jesus is the groom of my soul. He's the groom of your soul. And the joy that Jesus felt and experienced as he went to the cross is the same kind of joy that a groom experiences when their bride is coming to them. That's how Jesus feels about you. You see sin, you see shame, you see all the ways that you've got it wrong. You see all the ways that your sexuality has not been wholesome and flourishing and life-giving. But when Jesus looks at you, he is filled with joy. He sees you clothed in his righteousness, clothed in his love. 
and he feels nothing but unending, undying joy. That's why the Bible says that God actually looks at his people and he rejoices over them with singing. That's how much God loves you. You were the joy that led Jesus to the cross. And when you see that, when you understand that Jesus Christ is actually the true spouse of your soul, that fills you with a kind of joy and a kind of peace and a kind of beauty that enables you to go out in the world and live a little more selflessly than you did the day before. You see, what we need, friends, is not to change our behavior. Sure, that might come. But what we need ultimately is to see the spousal love of Jesus Christ, to see that we were the joy that led him to the cross. Because as we do so, everything changes. And so let's now come together in prayer and ask that as we respond to God, we would experience the spousal love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God, please help us now in this time of response as we listen to music sung, as we confess sin, as we sing along at home, as we use our bodies to praise you. God, we ask that this would be a truly transformative time because we encounter Jesus, because we experience what it meant for him to go to the cross joyful because of us. Lord, may that be true right now. May we encounter Jesus and his love for us and may it change us from the inside out. We ask for this praying together in Jesus' name. Amen.